Hi, welcome to Compositional. This is Roman Chipliaka. And today we have for you an episode with Zubin Dugal about the state and history of Haskell ID engines. And um, we originally recorded this episode back in December, but since then there has been a big update and uh, we just wanted to share it with you so that you can listen to the rest of the episode, keeping that in mind. So Zubin, what's the big news? The big news is that the GHCID repository has been archived and the entire gate history has been merged into the Haskell language server project. So there is now one single place for you to consult for all your IDE-related needs. Uh, This has been uh, long fermenting because there there is a lot of functionality that is duplicated or some functionality which is duplicated between GHCID and HLS. Some functionality that GHCID offers that should rightfully live in HLS because, but this functionality was added to GHCID before HLS was a thing. And uh, the technical reason, the immediate technical reason behind this change was uh, to properly modularize the functionality that we were talking about, like completions and things like that. Uh, We had to invert a dependency between HLS plugin API, which is a package uh, in the HLS repository, which defines uh, the uh, which defines what Haskell language server plugins, uh, the API for Haskell language uh, server plugins. Uh, we wanted to use that in GHCID, but uh, this would create a cyclic dependency because since HLS plugin API depends on GHCID. Uh, so to invert this dependency, uh, we thought the simplest way would be to merge uh, the entire history of a project together and uh, hack on it in one single repo, uh, which is the Haskell language server repository. Uh, so Zubin, I want to talk to you about the Haskell IDEs and uh, other development tools. And um, let's start with the history, both the history of the of these development tools and IDs, and also the history, how you got involved and when you got involved with uh, all of this. Okay, so uh, I guess uh, my, uh, my involvement in this starts out in around 2017 where uh, uh, at that time uh, there was no proper Haskell ID. Uh, if you remember, there was Intero and there was GHC mode. I think these were the two big tools that people were using with their editors. Uh, and uh, Alan Zimmerman and a few other people had started a project called Haskell ID Engine, which was uh, meant to be like a, a meeting point or, uh, for all for everyone to uh, collaborate, everyone who is working on Haskell tooling to collaborate their efforts. And, uh, but at that point, this was still uh, uh, not released. Yeah, people were mostly using GHC mode and uh, Intero, and there was no really universal solution that you could hook up to any editor. So, uh, 
the haskell id engine project uh, was meant as a way to uh, define a universal framework so that a universal uh, framework for integrating tools and a single place which uh, editors could integrate but the problem was that at that point there was no uh, common interface used by all editors so you each editor had to uh, roll their own plugin from scratch so up to that point the work on haskell id engine was mainly uh, building a protocol so that uh the server and the client the client in this case is uh, the editor and the server is haskell id engine uh, could communicate uh but uh this work kind of fizzled out had fizzled out by that point but uh, microsoft launched something called the language server protocol which defines uh, which standardizes this communication format between the client and the server so uh, haskell id engine uh pivoted to that and alan put out a uh, uh mail on uh, haskell cafe I, I think it was that uh, uh they would be switching to lsp in haskell id engine uh, that's where i learned about haskell id engine and i decided to help out with this uh, uh, new focus uh, as part of a google summer of code project since i was a student and i had nothing to do that summer so you worked on the Haskell ID engine to add the language server protocol support? Yes. Uh, so uh, so Alan and I uh, finished up the language server protocol bindings for um, the hackage package Haskell LSP, which, uh, which, is, which defines the LSP bindings for Haskell. Uh, and then I implemented over the summer uh, a basic... Uh, of viable uh, minimum viable product uh, for haskell id engine so we had definitions we had uh, type information on hover documentation on hover uh, completions and uh, common functionality like this and uh, yeah and then we had uh, refactoring using hair and i think formatting using Brittany at that point so this led to the first release of Haskell ID Engine. Tell us a little bit about this protocol, the language server protocol. What kind of protocol is it? So uh, traditionally, uh, or before the language server protocol, either you had these big IDEs like IntelliJ and Eclipse and Visual Studio, which would have their own parsers and sometimes type checkers. Uh, I think Eclipse has their own Java compiler and things like that. So they would uh, basically roll up all the language intelligence from scratch into their big ID. The other approach taken was uh, by smaller editors or more minimalistic, minimalistic editors like Emacs or Vim or Sublime Text or so on, um, where they would uh, rely on uh, some external binaries or external services uh, in order to get information about your code. So. Uh, but uh, at that point, uh, there was no uh, standardized way for these external tools to communicate with editors. So Sublime Text had its own protocol. Vim had its own protocol. If you remember, you complete me and things like that. There were a bunch of competing things. Sometimes the same editor had multiple of these protocols that it supported. So uh, as someone who wanted to work on tooling, you were in a rather tough spot. Not only would you have to... Um, 
write uh, the tool that can compute all this information for your language, but then you would have to write one binding or one plugin for each editor so the editor can now talk to your tool. So uh, uh, the way they, the LSP people, people phrase it is that it was a M cross N problem where if there were N, M editors and N servers, you had to uh, define one plugin for each of those combinations. Uh, but uh, the language server protocol, what it does is it turns this into an M plus N problem. So you so you write a client. So now the communication standard between the client and the server is standardized. Uh, which has its own limitations, uh, but uh, now you can just, as long as your tool conforms to the standard, you can work with any of the editors that support it. And for the on the editor side, as long as your editor has uh, has a language server protocol plugin, it can work with any of the servers that uh, talk in the language server protocol. Yeah, I to be honest, I never really understood this problem because clearly there's just one true editor and that is Vim. <laughs> uh, but as, assuming assuming that is a legitimate problem, how does that protocol actually look like on the wire? Is it a network protocol? Is it a? It, it's uh, agnostic to the transport, but most uh, clients and servers use standard in and standard out uh, input streams, uh, input and output streams, but. You can send it over the network or whatever because uh, VS Code actually supports this, I think, where you can run the uh, the server in a remote environment somewhere and get all the... And it communicates with your local instance of VS Code. But, uh, yeah, so the actual protocol itself is JSON RPC. So you, you're exchanging JSON messages. So uh, there are... Uh, notifications and requests. Notifications are when the client tells you, oh, the user typed this line in their file here, or, or, uh, or oh, the user created this file or deleted this file, basically informing you about the state of the world. world. And uh, so as a server, you have to listen to these uh, notifications and reconstruct uh, kind of like a virtual file system. So uh, what happens is you don't uh, trust the file system uh, when you're writing a server, you actually rely, rely on these messages that you get to construct a view of the file system because the user might have edited the file and not written it to disk and things like that. So you take that as the ground truth. Uh, so uh, so these are notifications that you get from the client. Uh, and then the client can also ask you for uh, information in the form of requests. So it says, oh, give me the definition of this thing at this point, or uh, the user tried to hover over the symbol over here, what should I show them? So uh, I like to think of it as mostly like uh, uh, an abstraction uh, or uh, a lowest common denominator abstraction over the UIs of various editors. So, uh, so you will have uh, so um, it supports a list of these, a bunch of these requests, like go to definition, go to type definition, format the document, or uh, give me completions at this point and things like that. And the server has to respond. It's interesting that you said that um, you don't trust the file system. So in, in, in case of Haskell, um, if you want to compile the project, you can't just ask the editor to supply all the files in that project, right? So you combine the information from the file system and from the editor? Yes. So you 
trust the client for whichever files are open. So whenever the user opens a file, you get an open notification. And from then on, you don't trust the file system for that particular file. You only trust uh, whatever the uh, client is telling you. Many clients support incremental changes, so they'll give you diffs. So they won't send you the whole document every time the user makes a change. They'll send you, uh, okay, the user inserted one character in this position and things like that. Uh, but some clients do not. Some clients uh, just send you the whole documents. You have to uh, support all kinds of uh, things. And uh, in case of Haskell, what happens on the other side uh, of this protocol? So you have the editor that wants to get some information about the current project. And on the other side, um, you have um, some server that talks to the GHC. And uh, so there are projects like GCID, which uh, simply launch I believe they simply launch uh, GCI and uh, issue commands to GCI. But um, what you did um, then during the summer of code and the current state, I understand is more like a GCC API session when where you talk to the compiler via um, Haskell functions. Yes. So we use the GHC API. This is why uh, you need to uh, use the same. You use. Uh, a version of the server compiled against the same version of GHC that you're actually using for your project. Otherwise, things just break because the server needs to know how to uh, load all your files and uh, uh, type check them and so on. So uh, the format of the HI file or the package uh, database has to uh, exactly match. So, um, yeah. So we do set up a GHC API session and this is a problem in itself because uh, you need to know how to compile the user's project. And that is non-trivial for most Haskell projects or many Haskell projects because people are using all kinds of build systems like Cabal, Stack, uh, GHC has Hadrian, and people are using Nix and Bazel and God knows what else. So, uh, so we've put in a lot of work into trying to support any kind of configuration. Yeah, so you are in this weird space where on the one hand, the build system has a lot of crucial information. So just to give our listeners some examples, um, something as simple as the extensions, right? Um, that uh, you need to enable to compile a certain uh, file or uh, the packages that you you depend on that need to be compiled and uh, they may reside in various um, package databases on disk you need to know where they are yes yes and and so you in in this id engine you have to re-implement some some of the ghc's logic right so you need to um, resolve dependencies between modules. So you need to recompile them, but also you need to re-implement perhaps some of the build systems logic because you, you have to maybe parse their definition files or maybe launch the, the build system itself to get some information uh, from it. Yes, so uh, Matthew Pickering actually came up with a very clever solution for this. So earlier we used to use GHC mod, which also had its own very clever solution for this, where it would uh, on-demand compile a version of... Uh, so 
Uh, another problem is so you can't link against Cabal or Stack or whatever because the user might have a different version of Cabal and Stack, and you would uh, at least even if the uh, server can't be independent of the version of GHC, you would like it to be independent of the version of Cabal the user is using. So you don't want to uh, force the user to recompile the server every time they update Cabal or Stack. So uh, GHC mod. Uh, implemented or not GHC much strictly something called Cabal Helper, uh, which was written by Daniel Grober, which we used for quite a while. Uh, it would uh, on-demand compile a, a tiny wrapper script that would actually link against Cabal and get all the flags for your uh, package. So, and it would be cached uh, somewhere on your system. So, uh, so, because, so that we don't depend on Cabal, we don't link against Cabal directly. Uh, Cabal helper would actually write out a script and then invoke GHC to compile it against and link it against whatever version of Cabal you had on your system at that point, uh, and then query the wrapper script for information. Uh, but now I'll get to what we are using currently. So, what we use currently to do all the setup is a very neat tool written by Matthew Pickering called. Uh, HIE BIOS. So if you notice, lots of projects these days have something called HIE.yaml file in their root uh, directory. So what this basically tells uh, uh, us, this tells, uh, uh, this is the configuration file format for HIE BIOS. So uh, what HIE BIOS does is it uh, has a bunch of logic for um, querying Cabal, querying Stack, querying uh, uh, other build systems uh, like Bazel and Nix. And you can also write your own, uh, you can give it your own executable. And the job of HIE BIOS is very simple. Yeah, it, it accepts a single file uh, as an argument, and it dumps out the list of flags that you need to compile that file using GHC. So uh, suppose uh, you have uh, overloaded strings and a template has in your default extensions in your Cabal file, and uh, uh, you link and you're depending on lens or uh, something. So uh, then at that point, uh, so given uh, any file in your Cabal project, uh, HI's BIOS's job is to tell the ID, okay, the user uh, has uh, overloaded, the user wants to compile this file with overloaded strings and template Haskell and use lens. Uh, from this location in uh, the file system. So that is what HIE BIOS does. And uh, the way it works is it uh, uh, tricks, uh, or basically it uh, uh, makes a fake version of GHC. So, uh, so uh, yeah, it makes a fake version of GHC. And uh, most build tools uh, will have some way to configure which uh, execute which binary for GHC they'll be using to compile your project, right? So uh, so, yeah, so in Cabal, you have the dash W option or the width compiler option where you can give it a part to, to a GHC executable and it'll use that. Similarly, stack has its own option. So HIE BIOS uses this flag to pass it a fake GHC. And what the fake GHC does is it doesn't actually compile your code. It just, it just reads its flags and saves it somewhere that HIE BIOS can read it and then report it to the uh, to the ID 
Does it also detect when the configuration of the build system itself changes? So if I added the cabal flag or if I added my stack YAML file, would it detect that? Uh, yeah, so HRE BIOS also uh, tells the ID, okay, I depend on these files here, like the stack.yaml file and the cabal file, and uh, refresh, and it tells the ID, okay, refresh your in, uh, your information, your information if you see any of these uh, files change. So if the stack.project, uh, stack.yaml file changes, uh, then the ID should uh, invalidate its cache of flags, whatever it has, and then ask HRE BIOS to compute them again. Uh, yeah, so most, uh, or I would say many uh, clients uh, uh, allow registering files in your directory to watch, so they'll automatically inform the server uh, if a particular file has changed. Otherwise, uh, if your client does not support that, uh, then the editor, then the ID has to watch those files themse uh, itself. Okay, so in our travel through history, we stopped at your Google Summer of Code project. Um, in was it in two thousand seventeen? Yes, the this Summer of Code project was in two thousand seventeen. This wasn't a Google Summer of Code project, actually. It was a Haskell Summer of Code project. Oh, interesting. Yeah, t tell us more about that. Did you have also any Google Summer of Code um, experience? Did you have anything to compare it with? So uh, this way, I kind of cheated. Uh, I got to do a Summer of Code uh, thrice. Google only lets you do Summer of Code twice, but the first time I did it in 2017, uh, Haskell, uh, the Haskell Foundation wasn't actually accepted to uh, Google Summer of Code. So Haskell ran its own Haskell Summer of Code with its own funding. So uh, I applied for that, and that's what I did in 2017. Uh, later on in 2018 and 2019, I actually did uh, Google Summer of Code. Did you notice any difference, like fr from your point of view as a student, as a participating student? Um, I, I don't know, maybe the the monetary conditions differed, but in terms of just the organization, were there any interesting differences between how the Google Summer of Code was conducted versus Haskell Summer of Code? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Google really only asks you for evaluations twice, and it, they only ask for a very minimal kind of information. So. Uh, in both of these cases, you're uh, in both of these uh, scenarios, you're mostly talking with your mentors. So, for the first summer of code, Alan Zimmerman was my mentor, and uh, uh, later on, it was Ben Gamari and uh, Gershom. Haskell summer of code, I, I if I remember correctly, was a lot more thorough with their evaluation, and they had a big feedback form for you to fill uh, fill up uh, at each evaluation with Google asks very vague and minimal information from you. They mostly um, ask the mentors for information. Uh, one interesting part of Haskell Foundation was that uh, I got my first stipend or, or the first half of, or 40% of my payment, I think, before any evaluations were completed. So uh, uh, I think Google also had this uh, scheme, but uh, they dropped it because uh, people used to just run away with the money and not come back. 
so you participated basically every year you participated in some version of, of a summer of code uh, between those programs uh, did you continue to work on these projects or was it just for during the these programs yeah uh, when it became very hectic at college then i would take a break kind of but uh, usually uh, i would continue contributing or um, especially when i had holidays from like a winter break or something then i would come back to uh, Haskell id engine or uh, whatever project and get back into it i think i contributed more code to Haskell id engine uh, during the winter of 2019 then during my summer of code because uh, one that i during the summer of code i was uh, concentrating on the lsp bindings a lot so that took a lot of time and uh, i also uh, knew the code base a lot more and i had refactored it significantly and um, basically rewritten it from scratch so uh, i was very i was much more confident in making changes yeah and i and uh, together over that winter and uh, the next summer of code, which uh, where we had Luke Lau, uh, who was another participant in summer of code, who, whose main project was to uh, add a testing infrastructure to Haskell, uh, Haskell ID engine called LSP test, which is a very nice library that lets you declaratively specify um, messages to send to the server and then wait for responses and so on. So uh, let's you uh, it's a DSL for basically specifying an LSP session so uh, you can test interactions between the client and the server. Uh, and it's usually, uh, it's general, so it's not tied to Haskell ID engine. It can be used for any other uh, uh, project which uses um, the language server protocol. But, uh, Luke also, contrib uh, together with Luke, uh, we uh, redid a lot of the Haskell ID engine architecture and came up with uh, uh, basic, uh, a kind of approximation to what we have today in GHC ID, I think. Uh, so uh, I'll get to this uh, when we actually describe GHC ID and how it works. So GHC ID uses Shake and a whole build system where you can depend on uh, parts of or special keys that are compute that depend on other keys. So you can say well, the type check of this module depends on the type check of all of these other modules, which depend on the content of this file that the, that the user included via template Haskell and all of this other stuff and the flags or and so on. So you can uh, declare your build the build graph of your program uh, in a very incremental and uh, fashion and shake it uses shake in, uh, uh, to actually resolve this build graph and make sure whatever you're accessing is up to date. Yeah, that's pretty cool because normally build systems are used to generate some files on disk from other files on disk, but because shake is also a library that's also written in Haskell, you can do all of this basically in memory without writing any files. Yes, yes, it's very cool, yeah. So that was during your 2018 Google Summer of Code? So this was mostly done by uh, me during the winter and Luke, who was also working on LSP test over the summer. But uh, in 2018, uh, I proposed a new kind. Uh, I was getting a bit frustrated with Haskell ID engine because uh, 
some of the inf- some of the things i wanted to uh, some of the kind of queries that i wanted to support uh, there was no easy way to do that kind of stuff using the ghc api at the time so what for example for example uh, we had references so if you want to uh, if you have a large project comprising of hundreds maybe thousands of files um, and you want to say okay where is uh, this function used across my entire project uh, so type checking your entire project is a very expensive procedure and then keeping all of the syntax trees for every file in memory is also very expensive which uh, is not feasible essentially so uh, so we needed some kind of a way to persist information to disk uh, for this uh, second we uh, we had no way of uh, getting information about code that lives in dependencies so um, we would uh, we could ask uh, cabal for the flags but the uh, but cabal would point us to a package db location which uh, contains just hi files and .o files it doesn't actually contain any haskell files and even if it did we wouldn't know how to compile them or how to parse them to begin with so there was no way to uh, so if you wanted to search uh, if you wanted to say go to the definition of something defined in a dependency or you want to do an analysis of your entire dependency graph for references or things like that uh, that was simply not possible because def- dependencies are basically this opaque back box black box that you can't uh, really peek into uh, so uh, i proposed something called hie files after discussions on uh, the ghc irc channel uh, which would essentially Uh, take some of the output of the type checker and the renamer. Uh, those are part of the GHC front end. So before it compiles your file, it needs to resolve names, figure out okay, this lookup actually is from data dot map and not from data dot hash map or whatever. And it resolves all those names and type checks your program and computes all this very valuable information that ID writers and tooling developers would really like. But then it just throws this away when it uh, goes on to compile your file and because it doesn't really require this information to type check or evaluate any other haskell programs so hie files are a way to persist some of this information uh, to disk so uh, there's a flag called f write id info in jc now uh, which will which will essentially write out a hie file next to your .hin.o files and uh, tools can look at that to figure out information about the source like what is the type of this thing here or what is the structure of the code or uh, where are things referenced or where are things defined and so you did that during your 2018 summer of code yes yes and yeah. was that mostly a change to the ghc itself that was yeah that was entirely in ghc and then as a proof of concept uh, that uh, these hie files are actually usable for something uh, i rewrote the hadoc uh, hyperlinker so uh, hadoc has uh, support something called hyperlink source where uh, in all your hadoc pages you can go there's a tab on top called source where if you click on it it takes you to an annotated version of the source code of your of the module you were looking at the documentation for so nowadays if you hover over things in that uh, in that annotated source you'll be able to see the types of things and you'll be able to click on stuff to go to that definition and when you 
uh, hover over something, all the other usages of that symbol will be uh, will light up on your screen and things like that. Uh, so at that point, Hadoc was uh, reparsing and retype checking um, Haskell files in order to get that information. But uh, now what it can do is it can read your HIE files and it doesn't need to uh, reparse or retype check. And what what kind of format do those files have? Are they JSON files or? Uh, so this uses the inbuilt serializer that GHC uses for uh, interface files, HI files, because uh, we do end up reusing a lot of GHC types like names and uh, fast strings and so on. So for simplicity, uh, it was decided that, and also. Uh, since this code had to live in GHC itself, it couldn't have many uh, couldn't have many other dependencies because uh, those dependencies would have to be made into code libraries for GHC itself. Yeah, that that makes sense. So we just decided to roll a custom format. Um, but if someone, so we were thinking of using something like CBOR, which is a compact binary object representation, I think, which is kind of like JSON, but could better for machines to read. We were thinking of using something like that, but uh, due to time constraints and all the complexity of uh, getting the GH- uh, CBOR lib- library into uh, the GHC bootlips, uh, we decided uh, we decided to uh, ditch that plan. If at some point in the future someone uh, wants to migrate over to one of those, that would be a good idea, I think. That makes sense because being binary, these files are also faster to read, uh, especially when you have to deal, as, as you described, you have to deal with uh, very large uh, projects, large amount of data. Yeah, so picking up from that large amount of data, so we have to serialize the types of every expression in your source tree. So as you can imagine, this is a lot of redundant information, right? Because if you have F of ABC, it's an F of has type. Uh, uh, F has type X to Y mm-hmm. to Z to uh, W. And then F of X itself has type uh, Y to Z to W and so on. So there's a lot of redundant information in here. So you don't just want to uh, write out the types of strings. You want to do some kind of hash consing where you uh, share the structure of your types in the actual binary representation. Where you don't repeat yourself too often. That's really that's really interesting. And uh, for those who don't know, can you describe what hash consing is? So hash consing is when you uh, recognize that uh, this data here you've already uh, is actually being used or being written has been written somewhere else. So instead of uh, re re-serializing that data, you simply put a pointer to the old data that you had. So basically, it works as a form of compression on your types. Yeah, so in, in your example, when you have um, this type um, x to y to, to z to w, then uh, you would recognize that it has this common part with the type uh, y to z to w, and you would write that part just once, yeah. and when you have to write x to y to z to w, you would say, actually, that's x to whatever I just wrote before. Exactly. And did, did that um, support for hash consing exist already in GHC? Uh, no, I, no, it doesn't. Uh, so 
I think some people uh, a while ago were looking for something like that for their own use. So I pointed them to this bit I wrote for HIE files. But what it does is it essentially defines. So uh, the type AST in GHC has some seven, eight constructors, I think, uh, functions and type constructors and uh, type variables and uh, things like that. But uh, so, uh, and it has so a type const uh, function will be represented as fun uh, type type. So type equal is a sum constructor with seven, eight, seven or uh, is a sum type with seven or eight constructors. And one of those constructors would be something like fun type type. So uh, what we have in HI, uh, in the HIE file code is a copy of this type constructor, but flattened out. So we have uh, an H, uh, HIE type would be uh, an H fun from an A to an A. So the A is parameterized. Uh, so uh, initially we keep it, uh, we just unroll it into into something isomorphic to the original type. But before we serialize it, we replace all these uh, recurrences with ints or pointers to other things in an array. So that's how this entire scheme works. But but the side effect of that is that you have to use the GHC API to read these files, right? If you want to read them outside of, of the GHC. Yeah. but. Um, Yes, you do need to use the GHC API, but the good part is that you don't need to do any setup with uh, uh, packages or flags or whatever. It doesn't depend on. So you don't need to know about everything in your dependencies just in order to read a HIE file. So in itself, it's a fairly self-contained format. So uh, to read it, so a lot of data you can get out uh, just by using the GHC API and not doing much else with it. Uh, one limitation is that you can't pretty print stuff, unfortunately. So if you want to pretty print a type or things like that, because uh, the pretty printer in GHC takes dime flags, which is this huge constructor which defines all of GHC configuration, like is put into this one massive uh, struct called dime flags, which has things like your flags and your plugins and all the settings for pretty printing and oh, Basically, every part of GSC configuration ends up in there. Uh, and to get a Dyn flags, you need to know uh, the libdir of your GSC. So libdir is uh, the library. Uh, so I think if you do GSC dash dash get library, or I'm forgetting the command, but it's where the base libraries are stored. So in order to construct a Dyn flags object, you need to know the libdir of your GSC installation. Unfortunately, this means that without using something like HIE BIOS to actually query the libdir, if there is a package called GHC paths, which uses some cabal setup.hs magic to uh, magically embed the libdir in your program. But um, this doesn't work well if you're going to share your binary or distributed sta uh, distribute static versions of it to other people because uh, statically linked versions of it because then it'll be pointing to the libdir in the computer that it was compiled with. So that's not a good idea. So we have to be really careful not to uh, embed the libdir anywhere. And then you also had, uh, I don't know if that was you or someone else, but someone had to add support for 
these HIE files to GCID engine, so it could exploit them, it could uh, take advantage of them. Yeah. Um, and so who and when did that? So that happened recently. Uh, it started uh, around uh, November last year, where um, I think, yeah, around the end of last year, where um, the GHCID folks uh, uh, used, started using them for uh, getting definitions and things like that. So uh, one uh, pain point of developing these tools is that you have to support a wide range of GHC versions. So on GHC 8.8, which is the one that supports uh, HIE files, was only released around September of last year. So we could only start using HIE files after that. Um, now we have a package called HIE Compact, which I wrote recently, which backports HIE files to GHC 8.6, so we can generate them uh, for GHC 8.6 too. But uh, they didn't get much adoption in uh, IDEs until recently, last until uh, last year and uh, mostly this year. So uh, over the last couple of months, uh, in fact, as part of the Tweak Fellowship, uh, I wrote, uh, I moved over a lot of uh, the source code traversals in um, GHC ID. I ported them over to use um, HIE files instead. So things like finding out the symbol at a type uh, or looking at all the references of a type uh, of a variable in the local file or getting the definition of stuff. Uh, we used to do an entire traversal using uh, uh, scrap your boilerplate kind of things over the entire EST that GHC gave us to collect all this information. But uh, now we don't need to do that anymore. We just uh, look at it from in the um, HIE file information that we computed. But you have the same problem with HAE that that you mentioned. You cannot trust the file system, and the, you cannot trust fully trust HAE files, right? So you have to again somehow merge the information yeah. from the HAE files and from the GC session from the editor. Yeah. So, uh, so we compute HAE files uh, whenever the user edit edits their code uh, using the virtual file, but. We don't write it to disk until the user actually presses save. So the HIE file stays in memory uh, as long as the user is editing. Okay, so we talked about your um, 2018 uh, Google Summer of Code. So what happened next after after the Summer of Code and maybe during the 2019 Google Summer of Code? Yeah, so in 2019, uh, I applied again uh, because uh, so... My main goal was to actually use, integrate HIE files with Haskell ID engine and a bunch of other tools. That didn't really end up happening because uh, first the GHC 8.8 release was quite a bit delayed. So that threw off all our scheduling. But what I ended up doing was I ended up uh, working with Matthew to um, uh, complete HIE BIOS and uh, basically uh, remove all um, uh, or uh, remove all traces of GHC mod, which we were using before to replace HIE uh, as for the job that HIE BIOS currently does. So we ported over uh, Haskell ID engine to use HIE BIOS. Uh, around that time, 
GHCID was also made public and they also started using HIE BIOS. Uh, additionally, I, uh, I wrote uh, uh, another LSP server which uh, still exists, but uh, I haven't maintained it for a year or so. But what it does is it uh, only uses HIE files to serve information. So it doesn't need to uh, uh, know about any of uh, the GHC API or most of the GHC API doesn't need to uh, know about flags and whatever and so on. It just looks at the HIE files that you have on disk and uses that to uh, serve information. So this can work with something like if you have GHC ID uh, running on disk and that keeps ensuring that uh, the HIE files are up to date, uh, this server can pick up on those HIE files and use those to answer queries. So, uh, so this server doesn't didn't really support uh, things like uh, virtual files because once you edit a file, uh, the information in the HIE file is out of date, right? So uh, we didn't. So it would still give you like old information, uh, but it worked well enough, and it it's really uh, low memory usage and. Uh, lightweight because it didn't have a GHC process running. It could just look at these files and uh, compute stuff for the user. And you mentioned the uh, GHC IDE, which is a bit of a parallel project that only recently sort of got merged um, with uh, with Haskell IDE engine, I think. That's my understanding. Uh, can you talk about that more, um, how GHC ID appeared and, and what it was and what it is? Okay, yeah. So uh, GHC ID was written by uh, uh, Digital Asset, with, who wanted uh, ID for their smart contract language, So. Um, which is based off on Haskell. So they essentially had to write a Haskell ID. So it was written by Neil Mitchell and uh, Moritz at Digital Asset and a bunch of other people. But uh, And it uh, made use of uh, Haskell LSP and LSP test and all of these libraries that we were working on um, for LSP support. But its major innovation was uh, switching to a shake-based architecture for managing uh, your project. So like I described uh, earlier, uh, what you have is a key value store in memory, which uh, represents all the useful information that the ID might require. And uh, all of this information is kept up to date using uh, a shake process. So um, using the shake resolve uh, dependency solver, basically. So it, uh, so you can say, okay, uh, completions over here depend on uh, the past module and uh, the type check module for all of these imports that I have. So it'll look at all the imports and compute a map of all the possible completions you might have in your uh, file. And then look at the past module and uh, look at all the local completions that come from your current module and combine them in a way uh, to generate your completion data. And if you go and edit one of your dependencies, uh, then this entire thing needs to be refreshed. So maybe you didn't edit this file, but uh, uh, you edited a dependency. So only the part of the completion that comes from uh, the 
dependencies needs to be recomputed and you can keep using the past module for your uh, current file as is so it does all this neat uh, 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 dependency resolution and keeps things fresh for us so that uh, we never uh, uh, have out-of-date information essentially in the id uh, that's not accurate really because sometimes we do want out-of-date information because if a compile is running, you don't want to wait for GSC to finish finish doing its thing before you tell the user the definition of something or, the, or what the type of something is. Uh, you want to, so if you have old information right now, you want to uh, access that and report it to the user as quick as possible, uh, minimizing latency, uh, even if that information might not exactly be accurate. Uh, we find that in most cases it is largely accurate because you want uh, you want invalidating everything in your uh, cache all at once, right? When you're you're only doing very local edits usually, so most information is still good. And so, what what happened to GGC ID next? So, in the at the start of this year, I think uh, the GHC ID people and um, all the Haskell ID engine people or a lot of them uh, met up at uh, Bristol Hackathon, which was set up by Matthew Pickering. And uh, we decided to merge the two projects and into something called Haskell Language Server. So GHCID still exists and it provides um, all the essential core functionality of an ID, like um, definitions and parsing and type checking and uh, making sure everything is up to date things like that. But uh, now more and more functionality from GHCID is moving into Haskell Language Server. And Haskell Language Server provides a really neat pl plugin API, which is built of, uh, which was essentially uh, taken from what we had in Haskell ID engine, which lets uh, developers of other tools like say formatters or uh, things like Retree, which is a Facebook code modding tool which lets you rename across uh, your entire project and unfold the definitions of functions and uh, inline them, and extract out extract out common parts of it uh, into um, auxiliary functions and so on. Uh, then you have tools like uh, hlint, which do linting. And so these aren't uh, core ID functionality uh, that lives in GHCID, but they can all be integrated via the plugin architecture that Haskell Language Server provides. Okay, so uh, I, I must have missed that point, but when did the language Haskell server enter the scene? So we, we were talking so far about um, GC ID engine, right? And then there was GC ID. Yeah, yeah, so uh, Haskell Language Server was uh... Uh, new development, like I said, I, after the Bristol meetup where Haskell ID Engine and uh, GHCID folks met, they decided to combine uh, their efforts on ha uh, Haskell Language Server. And and so was was that just a uh, merge of the previous two projects, or is this a completely new code base that somehow integrates them? Like, what's the relationship right now between? The Haskell language server and GHC ID engine. Uh, so 
Haskell language server is a whole new repository, but uh, a lot of the code in it is brought over from Haskell ID engine, especially the parts to do with the plugin API and things like that. And um, the uh, core ID functionality of um, Haskell language server is provided by GSC ID, uh, which works as a library essentially, providing all of this ID goodness to us. So it depends on GHC ID and it copied a lot of uh, the Haskell ID engine source code to uh, define a plugin architecture and then hook it up in the correct ways with GHC ID and uh, allow extended extending some GHC ID functionality as well. Uh, for example, uh, plugins can define their own rules now. Rules are the um, things that are uh, that Shake deals with. So. You say uh, so things in the key value store are computed via rules and rules have dependencies uh, as i was describing and so moving on to the very fresh history so this year i think you didn't take part in a, any summer of code but you did a, a tweak fellowship and so what was that and uh, what what did you do during this fellowship yeah so Week had put up a notice for uh, open source fellows uh, where it would fund uh, anyone basically to uh, for three months uh, as long as they worked on something open source that was valuable to the community. So I had a lot of uh, pending ideas about integrating HIE files and uh, making a database out of uh, the uh, uh, out of indexing HIE files and using that for things like uh, references and queries like uh, constructing call graphs and uh, finding out where all the expressions of a particular type are used and things like that. So uh, so I applied to the Tweak Fellowship and my main goal was uh, A, integrate all of the previous work I had done regarding HIE files since now we actually had versions of GHC which supported HIE files out in the wild um, and we could drop support for earlier GHC versions, for example, 8.4, because it, it's been uh, enough time since uh, uh, their release. And secondly, uh, I wanted to uh, improve GHC ID and uh, uh, get back into, so yeah, essentially improve GHC ID and make it use HIE files. Those were my goals for the fellowship. And and how did that go? What was the was the current status? What what came out of your fellowship? So first, I worked on the scheme for um, reusing stale data in your IDE. So GHC ID in the, uh, earlier this year or in the beginning of this year had very poor latency, even compared to Haskell ID engine, even though it. It was usually more reliable. Uh, latency was really poor. You had to wait for seconds where Shake would be uh, checking if all the rules, if all the dependencies are up to date, and only then you would get a result for your query, like a hover or a definition. So Matthew and I um, worked on uh, bringing on uh, using this technique that we had in uh, Haskell ID engine to reuse stale information. Um, if we had any available, instead of waiting for uh, all the computation to f finish and uh, ensure that we were up to date, 
So this reduced latency in GHCID a lot. Uh, think completions and things like that before this were uh, completely unusable, but uh, now they pop up instantly. And uh, this is important because completions, when you're typing, uh, as you're typing and you want completions, uh, you're invalidating the state of the ID as you type, right? So uh, it has to do a lot of recomputation. Uh, but uh, if you can, so you really need to, you really want to use stale data at that point because completions are only useful if they pop up instantly and uh, not if they pop up after five seconds of the user just waiting there. So uh, this was what I started with. Um, then uh, I started uh, improving HIEDB and I wrote um, an integration of HIEDB, which is a database, which is a SQLite database that is uh, made by indexing HIE files. Uh, and it lives in its own library uh, and provides a nice Haskell API to this database. Uh, with GHCID, so GHCID can uh, uh, basically acts as an indexing service for this database. And it, as soon as it compiles a file, it sends it over the, to the database to index, and the database maintains this um, cache of neat things like references and definitions and type information and documentation, so that the next time you open your ID, all of that will be up to date in the database and you can start answer, answering queries instantly and you can also uh, start uh, you can also do uh, all kinds of neat project wide queries which were earlier too expensive um, for the id to keep in memory so uh, so we can index thousands of files or uh, with hiedb in seconds uh, i think not thousands, but at least hundreds of files in seconds. Uh, I think GHC has around 500 files, which the date which HIEDB can index in around uh, 20 seconds on my machine, and uh, it can provide you with instant references across uh, all the 200 lines of code that make that are part of GHC, and uh, gives you all this really neat information. So. Um, so the PR to uh, merge all of this work in is still open. It's it's been open for a month on the GHCID tracker because uh, I've been quite busy with work and so on. But I hope to get back to it very soon, as soon as my uh, winter break starts, and that should be merged hopefully by the end of this year. Very cool. And um, as a summary of of this rich history that we um, we just talked about. Let's give some advice. So if someone wants to get started with uh, some form of a Haskell ID integration with their favorite editor, which is of course Vim, um, what would their um, steps be? What, what do they have to install or configure in order to get this integration? So you should keep one project on your mind, which is Haskell Language Server. This is the one you want to download. There are lots of ways of doing this. The main way is, or one of the most common ways is uh, just getting the binaries from the release page in GitHub, which you can do. Uh, and it'll require a little bit of setup, copying them into the right place and so on. 
Uh, but we do distribute static binaries and you can just download them and install them. Uh, and then you would need to uh, figure out for your editor. We have instructions on the readme for each editor or each common editor. How do you uh, tell it to use this binary? Uh, if uh, you use something like VS Code, uh, this is very simple. Uh, Luke Lau actually did uh, very nice work this summer uh, improving the VS Code plugin and the entire VS Code experience. So you just go to the VS Code extensions page, type Haskell. And the first link will be a Haskell plugin from the Has official Haskell uh, organization. You click install and uh, it will download uh, Haskell uh, language server in the background. And as soon as that's done, you will be able to just use use it with your project without any hiccups, hopefully. Um, so that's if you're using VS Code. If instead, uh, so another option you have is uh, GHC Up, which is a neat tool to let you manage GHC, multiple GHC installations and Cabal and things like that. That recently added support for uh, downloading Haskell Language Server 2. So you can say something like uh, GHC Up install HLS or Haskell Language Server forgetting the exact command line but uh, if you do that it'll download haskell language server and then again you need to go and set up your editor to work with that we have instructions in the readme but uh recent but uh we've been working really hard so especially luke has been working really hard on uh, uh, compiling static binaries for all possible configurations all the possible ghcs that we support back to 8.6.1 for all platforms, uh, not Mac, um, Mac OS, Windows, and Linux, uh, we have this entire matrix of uh, binaries that we statically compile and upload for every release. And hopefully, you'll be able to just use them and get started. Cool. So, um, yeah, so you download these binaries and then you have to configure your editor. And you also have to navigate this a bit awkward. Um, disconnect um because um your editor or actually probably some sort of plugin or extension of your editor that supports uh language um what's it called uh language server protocol doesn't know anything about haskell and so not only do you have to point it to the Haskell executables, but when when setting it up, you have to translate um, the concepts. I don't know how how abstract is this uh, language server protocol. Um, so I imagine it would refer to a typical object-oriented programming language constructs like um, classes, maybe or. Um, uh, yeah, probably w wouldn't know about, um, I don't know, types. How, how much does it know about types? So like I mentioned earlier, it is best to think about it as an abstraction over the editor UI rather than abstraction into the language. So, uh, uh, yeah, so it abstracts over. So it does have a bit of uh, language-specific terminology. Uh, for example, uh, we have something called a symbol kind for each symbol that you report. You can say, okay, this is a class or a constructor or a struct or an object or something like that. There's a whole list defined in the spec. But 
uh, what this essentially what these names essentially translate to at least on visual studio code which is kind of the reference implementation or icons so the user never sees uh, the name as such that this is a class or this is an object they just see uh, an abstract representation of the, whatever the uh, visual studio code icon is for class so this can be repurposed reasonably well into haskell or whatever since the text never really appears for other things it's quite abstract so it has things like uh, going to a type definition going to a definition finding references completion formatting so all of these are very generic things which aren't really language specific then it has things like hover which is where we show uh, uh, type information and documentation so if you hover over a symbol you'll see a pop up in visual studio code with uh, your type information and uh, the doc the documentation of any symbol you're hovering over so all of these concepts aren't uh, very language specific. I, I I feel they do pretty well for Haskell. What about some specific commands? So what comes to mind? I don't know if that has been implemented for Haskell, but in a typical uh, dependently type language like Idris or Agda, you have an adder command to um, give you an automatic case uh, case by case inspection. Right, it will generate a case expression with all the constructors of a data type. Um, does that exist for Haskell? And how would you invoke that? Yes. Uh, we had a very cool user contribution uh, by Sandy McGuire and uh, some other people recently to Haskell Language Server. So this actually added case splitting and a bunch of other things. They call it a tactics plugin. So you can th do things like introduce Lambda or automatically fill in holes in your program, which will fill in using uh, lambdas and case splits and using bound variables. Uh, so uh, this plugin already exists and it's exposed through something called code actions. So what code actions are, are when you are on a particular line, a uh, kind of in Visual Studio Code at least, a kind of light bulb symbol pops up near that line, which gives you a list of all the code actions you can apply at that point. So we support things like uh, applying hlint refactors. So if you have a redundant uh, dollar symbol, it can remove that or something like that. Uh, then if you have a hole in the, on that line, it will suggest things like automatically fill in the hole or refine the hole with some other function uh, or uh, it'll uh, or do a case split on some particular thing. Uh, it'll those things will pop up once you click the light bulb button and you'll get a drop-down menu of all of these options. So um, the UI is a little bit limiting. For example, there's no um, way to take arbitrary user input, which uh, lots of people have run into, or at least uh, when they're implementing language server plugins and so on. So, uh, but I don't think it is uh, specific to any language or such. Too much but uh, it is limiting yes i would i will admit that because you're only uh, you can only interact with the user in so many predefined ways and if you want to go beyond that you have to add extensions to the protocol which you then have to teach all of your plugins about and which 
gets you back to the original problem we were discussing. What what about um, syntax highlighting? Does that go through uh, this language server protocol, or does that remain um, the responsibility of the editor itself? That can go through the language server protocol. I think support was recently added in uh, the most recent version of the spec, uh, which was released quite a while ago, but uh, it does support syntax highlighting in the spec, but we don't support it in Haskell language server as of now. I think syntax highlighting, uh, you really want uh, it to be very low latency, right? Uh, so I think that's something that's best done in the uh, editor. But if someone decides to uh, implement a Haskell language server plugin, I wouldn't, we wouldn't mind and it would probably merge it in. And um, if, if someone is still uh, skeptical of all, all this enterprise and uh, undecided about whether they should um, install a language Haskell server. What's your single killer feature that you use most often or get the most benefit out of? Uh, Go-to definition. And for the past few months, I've been using references a lot, which none of you can use until my branch (laughs) is merged. So (laughs) that's a secret feature that I've been enjoying a lot out of. the past couple of months, but code navigation is essential because uh, you want to look at where the thing is used or where a thing is defined. That that really is a killer feature for me. But you have a lot of other cool stuff also, like the tactics plugin I described, where uh, it can automatically write a lot of your code. And that's very cool. And the feature where you find all references of the of the current variable. Um, is that also part of the language server protocol specification or is that some custom action that, that you have to invoke? Uh, that's part of the specification. So in GHC 9, we'll be able to do something very cool, which is uh, go to implementation for type classes. So suppose you use a show for on a character, right? Right now, if you try to go to definition on show, it'll take you to uh, wherever the class is defined, uh, show as type A to string or whatever, right? So that's not very useful. You actually want to go to the place where your actual implementation is coming for. In this case, it's the instance for show char. So uh, in GHC 9, we actually capture exactly this information in HIE files. Uh, all the evidence that GHC computes and resolves uh, we serialize information about that into HIE files. So you will be able to do things like this. And you'll also be able to think, do things like, uh, where is this instance of this class used across my entire code? So if you want to figure out, OK, I'm changing this instance, what is all the code that I might break? You can do things like that. Uh, so that's a very cool feature that will be coming in GHC 9. Yeah, yeah, that, that is mind-blowing <laughs> that we'll, we'll be able to do this. Cool, Zubin. Uh, thanks for joining me today, and and thanks for all your work on these development tools, on the um, ID engines, uh, and for bringing us into the future. Thanks for having me.